Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, I don't know whether I'm too late, but I was at uh, Kintore last week, so I'm going to say Happy New Year. Maybe that's the last opportunity this year. As Martin mentioned earlier in the service, uh, this morning we start a new sermon series, a series of four on the topic of the means of grace. We're going to be looking at prayer, at fasting, at gathering together, and at the Bible, the scriptures. I wonder as we start this series, what do we understand by this term, means of grace? Well, broadly speaking, the the means of grace refer to practices through which Christians grow stronger in their faith. They grow in their devotion and discipleship of Christ. You see, Christ has poured out his grace and his mercy upon us. And he did that through his once and for all death on the cross for our salvation. But he also continues to pour out his grace and his mercy upon us day by day in our lives. But you and I, we have to make that grace and mercy our own, deep within our own personal experience. If you like, the, the means of grace are, are like the toolkit that God has given us to make that happen. And through the, the power of the Holy Spirit that every believer has within them, The means of grace help us to lay hold of the grace and mercy and peace that Christ has made available to us. You see, the means of grace are themselves gifts from God. They're gifts to help us enjoy this new relationship that Christ's death on the cross has opened up for us. This new relationship to which God has called us. A new life of devotion, of love, of worship, of God. With all of our heart and soul and mind and strength. This is the toolkit he's given us to make that faith within us real, living, and active. Why do we need these means of grace? Well, I'm going to explain that with a picture, an illustration. It's a picture that I've used quite a lot in Malawi. It's very relevant there. But, but for those who like mountain biking around here, I'm sure it's a picture that you'll all relate to as well. 
I'd like you to picture the Christian life out in the world as being like the rim of a bicycle wheel. In Malawi, people cycle a lot, and, and the roads, I tell you, are, are very, very bumpy. But the Christian life is like a cycle wheel. The rim of the wheel, the tire, that's in contact with the rough and bumpy road that you're traveling along. But that bicycle wheel, the Christian life, it doesn't get anywhere without some power. So in the middle of the wheel, you have the hub, the hub of the wheel. And that is where the power, which of course comes from the pedals, where the power to turn comes from. But you don't get the power of the hub turning the rim of the wheel without some spokes, the bits that connect the hub to the rim and the tire of, and the contact with the ground. Well, the Christian life is like the rim, the tire. The grace, the mercy, the power, the forgiveness of Christ through his Holy Spirit is the power of the hub in the middle. These means of grace are the spokes. They are what connects the power of the hub in the, in the middle to have the turning effect on the rim, which is our Christian life through the bumpiness of the world and all we go through. The spokes are what joins the power of Christ to our Christian lives. If you don't have the spokes transmitting the power of Christ to the rim, what happens? Well, you fall off your bike. You're not going anywhere. You're static. So prayer, fasting, gathering together, the word of God and, and indeed others, these are the spokes. Prayer and the word of God, they're like vertical spokes, our relationship with God. Gathering together and fellowship, they're like horizontal spokes between each other. But they're all to do with connecting the power of Christ to make us effective, worshipping people in our Christian lives. So let's move then to the first of these means of grace in this series, which is prayer. Well, what is prayer? Well, at its, at its simplest, prayer is talking with God. It's conversation with him. It's knowing his will. It's enjoying walking with him, as it were, walking with him in the garden in the cool of the evening. Walking with him as his child with the loving Heavenly Father. Prayer can take many different forms. There's a simple acronym which um, gives us four different types of prayer, which I think is quite helpful as a way of sort of breaking down prayer into different types. It goes by the initials ACTS, ACTS, the Acts of Prayer. 
So let's just briefly go through those four to give us a feeling for the range of activities, the range of engagement that, that counts as prayer. First, A, adoration. You see, God created us to worship him. Adoration is praying in a way that, that simply recognizes God for who he is, that recognizes and worships him for his attributes, and it verbalizes the love and the worship that we have for him because we know him. And we adore him always. We don't just adore him when we want something. That's what my father used to call cupboard love. <laughs> there are many examples of prayer in the Bible where people simply take time out to praise and to worship and to wonder at God. An example was the adoration by King David after the temple uh, was, was underway. And that's in 1 Chronicles 29. David said, Praise be to you, Lord, the God of our father Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Yours, Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the splendor and the majesty for everything in heaven and on earth is yours. Yours, Lord, is the kingdom. Remember, he was the human king. But yours, Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted head over all. That's a wonderful prayer of adoration, recognizing God for who he is. Second, C, confession. Confession is a type of prayer where we, we own up. And we repent of the sins we've done against God and against one another. Things that we've done that we ought not to have done. They call those sins of commission. And things that we've not done which we should have done. They call those sins of omission. Sins can be by thought, or word, or deed, intentional or unintentional. James writes, confess your sins to one another. How often do we do that? And pray for each other. Why? So you may be healed. Healed in our relationships with one another. Healed in our relationship with God even healed in our bodies, our emotions, our spirits. Confession. Third, T, thanksgiving. Giving thanks to God for the things that we have received from him. And that's spiritual blessings as well as material things. Prayers of thanks that that we've come through difficult times, challenges we've faced in the past, and now we've come through into better times, light times after periods of darkness in our lives. Thanksgiving is a way of recognizing before God that we are not 
self-sufficient. It's not you that's the one that has solved all of your problems. It's recognizing that we are contingent beings, that we are dependent upon God. Yes, for even every breath we take. That surely spurs us into prayers of thanksgiving. And the Bible is full of prayers of thanksgiving, especially in the Psalms. For example, the first verse of Psalm 9, the psalmist says, I will give thanks to you, Lord, with all my heart. I will tell of all your wonderful deeds. And S, supplication. Prayers of supplication. Letting the desires of your heart be known to God. That's what he wants us to do, to bring them to him. The desires of our hearts for spiritual blessings, the desires of our hearts for material things change in our lives on earth. And we can be asking for ourselves or, as we call it, interceding for other people on behalf of others. Prayers of supplication. These are prayers that show that that you trust in God's promises that you want to align your will with his will and that you're not worrying in your own strength. You're allowing that worry to be done by him because you want your life and the life of others to be aligned with the will of God. Philippians chapter 4 verse 6 says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. So don't be anxious, but pray. A good example of prayer was Nehemiah in Nehemiah chapter 1, before he approached the king to ask for permission to go back and and rebuild the walls in Jerusalem. He said, Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name, the prayer of those who are adoring God. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of the king. And then he went forward with boldness and made his request. That was a longer and a more specific prayer, but but sometimes prayers of supplication can just be simple rocket prayers. Prayers made in in despair even in a situation. How long, O Lord, how long? The psalmist says that so many times. And frankly, sometimes so do we. Or do we? We should. How long, O Lord, how long? Many of the Psalms are prayers, and some of them, like Psalm 51, the prayer that that David uh, made when, after he'd had his adultery with Bathsheba, and Nathan had, had made it clear to him 
the wrong things he'd done. And it had all dawned on David. And he just came before God. And we have the words of his prayer in that psalm, Psalm 51. And some of these prayers, like Psalm 51, have all four of these types of prayer, all wrapped up into one. David starts with confession. Forgive me. Against you, you only, have I sinned. He sees the enormity of his sin, even against Bathsheba and Uriah and other people. He still sees them in that sense now that he has sinned against God. He prays a prayer of supplication. O Lord, restore me. Bring me back to where I was. And then that evolves into, into thanksgiving and adoration. I praise you, he says, for you have done all these things. You have taken me back. You have, I know your forgiveness. So all four of those can sometimes come into one psalm, one prayer. So as we think about prayer more now, having done that introduction to the means of grace and shown how prayer as a means of grace has these different elements, different types of prayer, we're now for the rest of our time going to look at one particular New Testament letter. It's the letter to the Colossians, and we're going to think about prayer within that. So yes, if you have a Bible, do open it at Colossians. Uh, we're going to be mostly looking at chapter 4, but a lot in chapter 4 draws its reasoning from the earlier chapters in the letter. So we'll cut back occasionally as well. The focus in the instructions on prayer within Colossians are primarily within a church community. So we can think of them in our own context here as well, as well as prayer individually. Because prayer can be collective or prayer can be individual. Small groups, big groups, as well as A, C, T, and S. So we'll read now Colossians chapter 4 and verse 2 through to verse 12. I'm actually reading from the NIV. So Colossians was written by Paul and Timothy to this young church in Colossae. Uh, It's the new church plant in many ways. Paul had never been there, but he'd heard about them. And he'd probably discipled um, the, the person who had planted the church. Verse 2. Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. And pray for us too, that God may open a door for our message, so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. 
Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Tychicus will tell you all the news about me. He's a dear brother, a faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I'm sending him to you for the express purpose that you may know about our circumstances and he may encourage your hearts. He's coming with Onesimus, our faithful and dear brother, who is one of you. They will tell you everything that's happening here. My fellow prisoner, Aristarchus, sends you his greetings, as does Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. You've received instructions about him. If he comes to you, welcome him. Jesus, who's called Justus, also sends greetings. These are the only Jews among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have proved a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, he was the one who planted the church in Colossae, and a servant of Christ Jesus sends greetings. He's always wrestling in prayer for you, that you may stand firm in all the will of God, mature and fully assured. These verses in the Bible I've just read are given the heading, Further Instructions. But you know, these verses are no closing afterthought to all the meaty stuff that comes earlier in the letter to the Colossians. They may seem like a rather random collection of greetings and instructions and messages, but actually, when you get into them, they illustrate the real prayer-centered life for those who are true disciples of Christ. These verses illustrate that the prayer life of these people, these people who trusted in Christ as Lord, the prayer life of those people who were actively seeking to live out their lives in community, in evangelism, in care for others, seeking to proclaim Christ in everything that they did. All these names, groups of people working together as community. You see that those people who are seeking to live out that way in an unbelieving world around, for them, prayer was a priority. It was the priority of them as a Christian believer community. Central to their ability to live that kind of life out in the community was their prayer life. You see, prayer for them was a key means of grace, the means whereby the power of the hub was transmitted to the rim of the wheel that they were living out as a life together in the world, proclaiming Christ. Central to all that was prayer, to their discipleship, to their evangelism, to their perseverance, to their growth. Look at verse 2, the first half of verse 2. Paul says to his readers, and he's saying to every one of us, devote yourselves to prayer. 
Paul uses that language not just in Colossians, in Romans chapter 12, verse 12. At the end of a long list of spiritual exhortations to the believers in Rome, he says, be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful or devoted, the same word, in prayer. Different versions use a different word that all capture different aspects of what we mean by devoted in prayer. The ESV uses the word constant in prayer. The New King James Version says continuing steadfastly in prayer. The New American Standard Bible calls it devoted to prayer. It's what our attitude towards prayer should be. Devotion in prayer also seems to have been a priority in the book of Acts. From the very earliest days after Pentecost in the life of the early church. Look at these ones. Acts chapter 1 verse 14, that's after the ascension of Jesus while the disciples were waiting in Jerusalem for the arrival of the Spirit at Pentecost. It says, all these people, the ones who've just been mentioned, with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers, collectively, in community, devoting themselves to prayer. Acts 2, 42, speaking of the early converts in Jerusalem, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, that's the word, to fellowship, that's the gathering, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. They devoted themselves to these means of grace. That's the, the early church in the first days. Acts chapter 6, verse 4. The apostles said, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So by all these accounts, devoted to prayer was a standard feature of the normal Christian life of the New Testament church. Is it ours? What would prayer, devoted to prayer, prayer, look like? Well, likely it would have included all four aspects, A, C, T, and S. The prayer would have been habitual, not just random and unplanned. And it would certainly have been marked with perseverance. And Jesus himself, in his own teaching, he said the same, Luke 18, verse 1, pray continually. So at the start of 2022, we should ask ourselves, are we collectively devoted to prayer in this way? And am I, are you, individually devoted to prayer in this way and to all four types of prayer. Many of you may remember the name Jonathan Aitken, the former MP, who came to true faith in Christ while he was in prison for perjury. 
And he wrote in in his book about this afterwards, he wrote about his former relationship with God and his relationship with prayer before he came to true faith in Christ. And he compared that relationship he had and his attitude to prayer with his relationship with a bank manager. Listen to this. He says, I spoke to him, that's God, or the bank manager, I spoke to him politely, visited his premises intermittently. Occasionally I asked him for a small favour or an overdraft to get myself out of difficulty. I thanked him condescendingly for his assistance, kept up the appearance of being one of his reasonably reliable customers, and maintained superficial contact with him on the grounds that one of these days he might just come in useful. Is that a bit of a summary of your relationship with God? and especially of your prayer life. In the, in the Try Praying campaign booklet, I had a little look at that, and it says 27 million people, million adults in the UK, say that they pray, whatever that means. 10 million of them claim they pray regularly. Half of those who pray believe that God hears their prayers. And even 20% of those people who say they're not in any way religious say they still pray. And there are various occasions when people like this may pray. They may simply pray when a crisis hits. They may pray at each mealtime. They may pray before a long car journey or or pray for a good night's sleep. Well, all these are good things to pray for. But is that what Paul means when he says, be devoted to prayer? Or is he really thinking of something very different that runs far deeper in our lives? In 1 Thessalonians, writing to the church in Thessalonica, Chapter 5, verse 17, Paul encourages the church to pray without ceasing. What does that mean? It certainly doesn't mean praying becomes everything, the only thing we have to do. No, no. So what does be devoted to prayer mean with that? Well, here's an example. I'm devoted to my wife, Ruth. But it doesn't mean I have to spend every single minute of every day with her. Indeed. (laughs) I'm sure that if I did, that would very quickly kill off any devotion she has to me. (laughs) But it does mean that my devotion to her affects almost everything else that I do in my life. It affects the things I do, the way I spend my time. It affects the boundaries of my relationships with other people. It affects the daily patterns of life and and where I live. It, It affects the way I know that I try to do things which will please her rather than 
irritator, with some success and sometimes not. But that's my, my devotion to her. And likewise, devotion to prayer doesn't mean we spend all our time on it, but it's, it's affecting the way we approach the whole of our lives. You see, being devoted to prayer will make our lives look rather different from having a life which is not devoted to prayer. Just as devoted to Ruth makes my life look quite different from living a life not devoted to Ruth. So why is Paul encouraging the church in Colossae and in the other verse I mentioned in Rome and in Thessalonica not just to remember to pray but to be devoted to prayer? And from the verses that follow in Colossians chapter 4, I suggest Paul says it because he knows that the Christian life will not be easy that the road is like the road the wheel has to bump over. It's bumpy. And that's one reason why we are commanded to pray. At the heart of Paul's life, there were so many struggles and challenges. And there are in many of our lives as well, challenges and struggles. Maybe not the same as Paul's, not the same as each other. All challenges in different ways. Chapter 4, verse 3 of Colossians, Paul says, And pray for us too, that God may open a door for our message, so we may proclaim the mystery of Christ, what? For which I am in chains. Yes, Paul is languishing in jail, in prison for his faith, as he exhorts the Colossian church, devote yourselves to prayer. He's thinking of them even from his prison cell. And it's the same for many of us. We must be devoted to prayer because life has so many challenges. Church life has challenges. Individual and family life has challenges. And Paul's also implying we need to be devoted to prayer because, because of the challenge of speaking in a God-centered, God-worldview way to people around us in the, in, who are unbelievers in the world. We're in a, con, in a culture that is hostile to the Christian message. Verses 5 and 6 of chapter 4. He says, Be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt. So, so you may know how to answer anyone. Remember, this is prayer in the sense of community, of outreach, of evangelism, of proclaiming Christ through their whole lives. So be devoted to prayer. Why? So you're effective in all of these things. It's often a challenge to stand up for the truth of Jesus Christ and for what is right, and yet to remain gracious and wise in the words we use. We need words that are as Paul says, full of grace. The grace we've received from Christ that channels through the means of grace into our lives needs to spill out onto the unbelievers in the world around us, yet seasoned with salt. So not bland words, but seasoned. Words that have a taste 
just enough taste to make them palatable, to make them a challenge, to have a depth of meaning rather than being platitudes, full of grace, seasoned with salt. And to get that, we need to be devoted to prayer. Think about the way Jesus spoke with people. He used words to have impact, to build the kingdom. His words, you'd say, were full of grace, seasoned with salt. And it's the same for us, for our evangelism to be effective. We must be deeply rooted in our devotion to prayer. Just as Audrey was saying earlier, Alpha needs a prayer team. Second half of verse 2. Devote yourselves to prayer, says Paul, being watchful and thankful. (laughs) Why watchful and thankful? They may not have been the two words you or I would have chosen to qualify how we should go about being devoted to prayer. So why does he choose those words? Well, the answer comes from the things that Paul has said earlier in the letter, chapters 1, 2, and 3. Why must we pray watchfully? Well, first, we must be watchful because the word means we need to be awake. We need to be awake to maintain the quality of our godly Christian lives. If we fall asleep, we'll fall off the right path. Why do we need to pray watchfully over our own lives? Well, the reason is, going back to chapter 1 of Colossians, because the glorious cosmic Christ that he describes back in chapter 1 verses 15 to 20. The Christ who is the image of the invisible God. The Christ who is the head of the church. The Christ who, in whom God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell. The Christ whose blood shed on the cross has made peace with God. The Christ who will one day reconcile all things in heaven and on earth back to himself. That Christ, because that Christ is coming back again. So we need to be awake. We need to be watchful. We need to be devoted to prayer in a watchful way. Because that big, powerful Christ is one day coming back. Hallelujah. Colossians 3 verse 4 says, and when Christ appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Do you want to be asleep when that happens? Be watchful. Be ready. Be awake. Be devoted in prayer. Second, why must we pray watchfully? We must be watchful because, as Colossians chapter 2, verses 8 to 23 highlights, it is so easy to take your eye off the ball, take your eye off the grace that has come to you only through the cross of Christ. 
to revert to thinking that salvation depends on you, not on God. And then you start following human traditions. You start following religious practices and thinking, this is how I make myself right for God. Rather than following Christ alone, it's very easy to do. So we must pray and we must be watchful not to fall back into those ways of legalism and ceremonialism and so on that Paul describes in Colossians 2. Why must we pray watchfully? Well, third, we must be watchful because as Colossians 2 verse 15 indicates, we're in a spiritual battle. Your enemy, the devil, prowls, so take care lest you fall. Colossians 2 says Satan is a defeated enemy. He's held captive, but he's still in his death throes now. He makes trouble for those who want to build Christ's kingdom. So we must pray devoted because we must be watchful because we're in a spiritual battle. And why must we pray watchfully? Fourth, we must be watchful because in Colossians 3, it says, there, when you came to faith, you put away the old sinful way of life and you came to Christ. It says you have set your heart on things above, not on earthly things. And yet this old nature that is still within us can so easily snatch us back into it pull us back into our old sinful ways of living. And you can't split yourself down the middle. You can't remain a person of godly integrity if you have one foot in the old kingdom and one foot in the new kingdom. So pray devoted and watchful that you will not let that happen. We must be devoted to praying watchfully. And secondly, why must we pray thankfully? Well, we must be thankful because we are, in our minds, so very aware of all that God has done for us by his grace. That's the power of the hub that drives us forward in our Christian lives. What's he done? He's rescued us from the dominion of darkness to the kingdom of light. Chapter 1, verse 13. He's transformed us from being alienated enemies of God to being reconciled friends of God. Chapter 1, verse 19. He has moved us from, dead in, from being dead in sin to being alive in Christ. Chapter 2, verse 13. So we must pray in a way that's thankful for all of this. Never forget those transformations that Christ has done in our lives. Why must we pray thankfully? Well, we must be thankful because as believers, as he says, we have already been raised with Christ now. We don't have to wait till we die to be raised to life in Christ. We are already living the new life in the power of the Spirit. And we don't want to fall away from that. Why must we pray thankfully? We must be thankful because, as Paul wrote in Colossians 1, 3 to 8, right at the beginning of the letter, we 
see people around us in church who have faith in Christ and love for other people. Just as Paul could see in the Colossian church, there were new converts, believers, who had faith in Christ and love for their fellow believers. Take a moment, look around you. See some of the people around you. They should inspire you to devote yourself in prayer and thanksgiving for their faith, for their commitment to Christ, and for their love and care for others. That should inspire us to devote ourselves in prayer. And finally, in these verses in Colossians 4, what does Paul, Paul teach us as an example about the nature of prayer? Look at Colossians 4 verse 12. Epaphras, the, the founder of the Colossian church, who is one of you and a servant of Christ Jesus, sends greetings. He is always wrestling in prayer for you that you may stand firm in all the will of God, mature and fully assured. He was always struggling in prayer. It's a word that comes out of the wrestling pit. It, it involves strength, muscles, fighting against muscles. It's that kind of picture, that language. You see, prayer is hard work. It doesn't come naturally to us. And yes, that spiritual battle, the devil would love us just to stop. It doesn't come naturally. It won't just happen easily. It will not just happen spontaneously, apart from those times when we're in desperate need. So if you find it hard to pray, you're in good company. Even these early apostles, they struggled they wrestled, they battled to keep praying. So we must always work at it conscientiously and purposefully. I've got words beginning with P. We must persist in prayer. Secondly, we learn that the prayer should be mutual, two-way. Look at Colossians 1.3, he says, we, that's Paul and Timothy who wrote the letter, we always thank God when we pray for you. That's when we pray for you, Colossians. But skip to chapter 4, verse 3, pray that Paul asks the Colossians to pray for him, that he may proclaim the mystery of Christ, for which he is in chains. You see, each one is praying for the other. Prayer is strengthened, prayer is encouraged by partnership, whether it's within families, small groups, small, uh, in our small groups, or within church, or among other friends. But knowing that prayer is going in two equal directions, mutual partnerships of prayer are encouraging. That's part of, of being devoted to prayer. So P... Partnership. Persist. Partnership. And now, thirdly, prayers should be specific. In the next verse, Colossians 4.4, Paul says to them, pray that I may proclaim it 
clearly, as I should, clearly he was concerned being in prison, the gospel he told to the guards and others around might come out like mumbo-jumbo. So he's asking them to pray for him to be clear in the way he presents the gospel to them. Paul knows and says exactly what his prayer request is. And so should we do that. Is a P. Prayer should be precise. And finally, prayer should be big. As we finish, let's reflect the visionary way that Paul prays for these Colossian believers. And let's learn from his example. Go to chapter 1, verses 9 to 11. Paul says, we, that's him and Timothy. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives. Why? So you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, That's the spokes working. So you may have great endurance and patience and giving joyful thanks to the Father. All the ACTS get wrapped up in that big prayer. Fourth P, prayers should have power. Be persistent. Be in partnership. Be precise. Be powerful. So let's take time at the beginning of the new year now to rethink our priorities. How can we make our prayers be more like those of Paul? Will we make a resolve for the new year individually and indeed collectively? You see, prayer is a key means of grace that the grace of Christ flows into our lives to help us live in this world. It's a wonderful gift from God. It's for our joy in Christ, but above all, it's for his glory to shine out from us. Hallelujah. Amen.